0: The owner and CEO of the well-known company Tesla, Elon Musk, purchased the social media platform Twitter. Now from past interviews that Elon Musk had given, he, he was distraught by Twitter's controlling nature of what was posted on their site. He was, he was attempt, his, his, his purchase of Twitter was trying to be a champion for free speech. And so many people, including myself, in some respect, were happy with this. We, we thought that someone is at last standing up to the censorship, and someone is standing up to, to those who would seek to confine and to, to really to box in truth or to set themselves up as the arbiters and the judges of truth. But only a few days later, after this purchase, uh, the Department of Homeland Security then constructed what they called the disinformation governance board and this board the job of this board is to not only monitor a single social platform like twitter but they're going to monitor all interactions on the internet this this governance board is to is to is to maintain what they deem as truth and this is the times in which we live And really, this isn't isn't particular to our country. There are many other countries in our world who are already at this point, but it's new to us. We're used to having free speech. We're used to being able to say what we wish in the public square without without the threat or the fear of having the authorities come down on us. And then it makes you wonder, what does that mean for us as the church? What does that mean for us going forward? What will life look like in five years or ten years when when perhaps this disinformation governance board deems the gospel offensive to the degree that they begin to punish those who preach the gospel? When, When Christians begin to speak out against the LGBTQ movement and how it is offensive to God and when they speak out at the fact that life begins at conception. How long will it take before this, this new branch, this new arm of the government to come down and begin to, to set up the, what they deem as truth and non-truth? And so it causes us to be anxious. It can cause us to, to, to really question what's going on and, and how are we are to deal with the times in which we live, these uncertain and anxious times. Because really, to encapsulate it, what they're trying to do is men setting themselves up to be judges of truth. They want to, they want to make a statement that this is true and this is false. They want to come in and they want, to, they want to tell us what we are to believe and what we are to deny. But thankfully, God has not left us without an answer. And our text this evening of Psalm 2 gives us a very clear indication of their end and how we are to live in light of what sinful, rebellious men are doing. Now, just to give a little context for the Psalms, um, Psalm 2 really functions, I think, one of the great misunderstandings of the Psalms that sometimes occur is that that they're just a mismatch of, of different great songs or poems, but really the Psalter has a great structure to it. And Psalm 2, as well as Psalm 1, kind of function as a fountainhead for the entire Psalms. Psalm 1, speaking of God's law and the blessedness of, of the man and, or the woman who walks according to that law. But Psalm 2, we are introduced with the idea of kingship, the idea of, of, of God's rule and reign over All things. And these two themes of of God's good, the goodness of God's law and the goodness of God's King run as these great themes, not only through the Psalter, but also through the entire Bible. And so as we look at Psalm 2, the main thing I want us to take away from this, from it is this: that the promise of the Father to give his son a kingdom empowers us to live faithfully amid an uncertain and rebellious world. That the promise of the Father to give His Son a kingdom empowers you and me to live faithfully amid an uncertain and rebellious world. I want to look at this in in four points. And really, it it lays out very nicely. And we are introduced with four speakers. In verses 1 through 3, we have the voice of men the voice and the action of men. Verses 4 through 6, we have the response of God the Father. In verses 7 through 9, we have the Son and the response of the Son to the Father's decree decree and the promise. And then verses 10 through 12, we have the Holy Spirit or the narrator speaking, giving warning in response to the Son and the Father and also the voices of men. So, if you read with me again, just our first section, verses 1 through 3. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart, and cast away their cords from us. In our first section, we are presented with the rebellion of man plainly, the rebellion of men, how men come together, we're told that they conspire, they gather together, they assemble, and not only the people, but the rulers of these nations. They gather together and they set themselves, they make their stand against the Lord and against His anointed. Which makes us wonder, why? Why do they take their stand? Why, why are they in such a, a, a fury of trying to be apart from God? Well, they answer with their own speech in verse 3. They say, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In short, they're in bondage. They're in bondage to God. They're in bondage to the Lord and to His anointed. Now, it's not as if they're in physical chains necessarily, but the the idea is that God has authority over them. That they, they war against the very fact that God has... God has propriety over them, that God by virtue of being their creator and their sustainer and He who even gives them their food and their water to sustain their life, they rail against Him. They rail against the idea that they are not autonomous. They rail against the fact that they cannot be the the master of their own destiny or the captain of their own fate. So we ask, where does this come from? Where does this rebellion stem? Has God not been good to them? Has God not given them everything that they need for life? And has he not even given them his, uh, the revelation of himself and his word and in nature? Well, to answer this question, we go back to Genesis 3 in the garden, at the fall of man. And it's, it's extremely interesting, the, the language it is it's almost exactly the same here and in and in Genesis 3, in Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Adam and Eve and says to, says to them, basically questioning God's goodness to them. Adam and Eve were given the entire garden. They were given all the goodness of God to enjoy. We were even told that they walked with God in the cool of the day. But yet Satan comes to them and said, is God really that good to you? Is God really being that benevolent to you? He told you, after after all, you cannot eat of this tree. He's he's, he's withholding from you. Do you see that? And Satan deceives Adam and Eve into thinking that they would be better off without God than in living under the authority of a benevolent God. Satan Satan twists and and deceives them into reaching out and to taking of that fruit. And in the reaching out and the taking of that fruit, in essence then they committed the very first act of rebellion in desiring to be their own God, in, in breaking the rules that God had laid down for them and, and believing the lies that Satan told them that life would be better off if they were their own God, if they made their own rules rather than living under him. And so, consequently, Adam, in his fall and as our federal head, plunged all mankind into this state of sin and misery. So it's not that mankind was born neutral and, and based upon their good deeds versus bad deeds, they, they, would, they would rebel against God. And it wasn't that it, wasn't that they, it was the, the place where they were born or it wasn't their upbringing that caused them to rebel against God. We see here really the doctrine of total depravity, that, that mankind was born with a sinful nature, that mankind was born in this rebellion and hatred to God. They, they, they want to live without His rule. They want to live as their own God. And we see this expressed eight chapters later, a mere eight chapters later at the Tower of Babel. We see this, we see this expression of sinful nature in that these, these nations, actually well, as one nation, they came together and what did they say? Let's build a city. Let's build a tower with its, with its height in the heavens so that what that we might glorify god no that all who walk by this will see our great tower and city and they will praise our name that at the tower of babel we have this we have this picture of the ultimate rebellion of man in trying to set up a name for himself and it's interesting to think about this tower that they're building With them trying to build it to the heavens as if they want to ascend to God's throne room. Ascend to the very throne room of God and tear Him off of His throne. They were born with this sinful desire to rebel. They were born with this desire to be their own God. Even though God has given them ample cause to to, to love and to adore Him for what He has given And this rebellion is not just stuck in the past, though. We see this in our own present day. If we ask this question, why do you think that mankind invented the theory of evolution? Why would mankind devise the theory of evolution? Was it that the scientific method had become so advanced that we began to learn new things? No, it comes back to this simple concept that if we can explain the origin of life apart from the idea of a creator, then we wouldn't be under the authority of that creator. That if we can, if we can devise and scheme a way that we can so suppress God and push Him out of the way, at least in our minds and try to, then we can live our lives the way we please without having without having to think about, well, is this right or wrong? Is this is this God's truth, or is this something I've devised myself? And we even see it that it, it manifests itself even in our own neighborhoods. That that are that sometimes the people in our neighborhood are even living in a state of just just pushing God out of the way. They may not be building towers. They might not be the scientists propelling this theory, this anti-God theory. But just the very fact of trying to live life apart from God. Just pretending He's not there. Pretending that what we do doesn't really matter in the end so that I can do it and I can do my own pleasures now. I guess the point of the matter is God, sinful man has been rebelling against God from the end, so to, from the beginning. So to see these nations gathering together and conspiring and rebelling against God should not surprise us. It should not surprise us. But yet that's not the end of the matter. Though sinful man rebels, God is not silent. If you look with me at verse 4, God responding to them in this way... He, being God, who sits in the heavens, laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then He will speak to them in His anger and terrify them in His fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. The first verse in verse 4, we're presented with with this this language of just, just the fact that God is in heaven. You have the kings of the earth down here, but God who is in heaven, showing his authority over them, showing that he is above them, God who's sitting in heaven laughs at them. And it's interesting because there's, not, there's hardly any places in the Bible where it says that God laughs, but almost any time you find it, it is at the sinful rebellion of men. And God laughs God laughs not because he finds their, their sin funny. No, he finds his sin, their sin heinous before him. But he laughs because he knows the end. He knows that even though men conspire, even though these great kings of nations gather together and they, and they may bring vast wealth and resources together against him, ultimately, in the end, they cannot be victorious. It's, it's like what we read in Revelation 19, where you, have these, where you have the kings of the earth assembled at the second coming of Christ with, with Satan at the head, and you have the armies of heaven assembled on the other side with Christ at their head. And at the end of it, we're given this really very graphic picture of the absolute destruction of, of the rebellion of mankind against God the birds filling their bellies with the flesh of these of these rebellious men and it's a gruesome picture really to think about but but it really it really gets home at at the at the weight of the matter the weight of the matter that though these men raise their arms in rebellion against god he is not silent and yet he laughs at and he mocks at them Not because he finds the rebellion funny, but because he knows the end of it. He knows the end of the matter. God not only laughs because he knows their end, but he speaks to them this way. In verse 6, as for me, I have, past tense, I have installed or I have set my king. The kings of the earth are, are coming together, trying to establish their dominion, trying to establish their reign upon the earth. But God is saying, no, no. In all eternity past, I have already made my counsel. I have already set my decree and my will that I will have a king, that I will have a king, but it will be none of you. That my king will be benevolent. That my king will not be like the rulers of the earth, who seek, to, who seek to profit from their people, who seek to oppress them, and who seek to rebel against God. But my king will be one who comes in obedience and humility, and who will be kind and gentle and loving to his people. God laughs because he has set his king over them. But also he says that he will speak to them in his anger. He will speak to them in his anger. He's not shaken by rebellion, but he is jealous for his own namesake. And as we will see later on in, our, in the fourth point, that, that God, God is, he, he is holding forth, he's holding back his anger for a time. That though these kings and these men may assemble and they may conspire, it does not last forever. That God will, one day, God will speak to them in his wrath. And we ask, why? Why did, God, why did God appoint a king over creation? Would God not be just in just completely wiping out all of rebellious mankind? I mean, really, that's, that, that's a very sobering truth to know that God would be just to send every single man, woman, and child who has ever been born to hell, and he would be completely just in doing so. However, God sets up his king in order to show His loving kindness to His fallen creation. God sets up His King in order to show His loving kindness to His creation. That, he, that though they rebel against Him, He still has a love for them. And that that he, has, that he has a decree in all eternity past to save a people for Himself. And that through the work of this King whom He has set, whom he has set upon Zion, the place where God and man dwell together, that through this king he has a great and awesome plan to redeem this people for himself. So, who is this king? Who is this great king whom God has chosen? If you look at me, the verse 7. Now, this is the son speaking in response to the father. Verse 7 says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. Here we see the identity of this king whom God has chosen, whom he, the anointed one of God. It is none other than His Son. It is none other than the sinless Lamb of God. And we see this. We see God's confirmation of this. That God has chosen His Son to perform this great task of redemption and to set Him as as King. First, we see... And and the language is extremely similar. In in His baptism, particularly in Matthew chapter 3, we have these same words. The heavens part... And God the Father speaks from heaven, This is my Son. At His transfiguration, the very same thing. We have Moses on one side of Christ and Elijah on the other, representing Christ as the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets. And and God the Father from heaven speaks, This is my Son. Listen to Him. We even have the centurion at Christ's crucifixion, as Christ hangs upon that cross and the earth trembles at, at, at Christ's last breath. And the centurion says, surely this man was the son of God. And God honors his son by raising him on the third day and, as, and bringing him up in his ascension to heaven. And where does he seat him? He sits him at his right hand. He sits him in the place of authority and rule. God has... God has abundantly shown that it is His Son who He has chosen as His anointed to rule and to reign over all creation. And He has chosen Him simply for the fact that Christ is worthy of that kingship. Christ not being like the rulers of men, but Christ who is humble. Christ who comes, first of all, in His humiliation, He comes in the incarnation and He becomes in the likeness of His creation. And he becomes the likeness of his rebellious, sinful people. That he's born under the law. That he obeys the law of God to the fullest. And that he lays down his life for that chosen people that God has appointed for him to redeem and to save. We see Christ as worthy of, and it's what we, what we meditated on in Philippians chapter 2 that God bestowed upon the Son the name which is above every other name, so that, so in order that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. In his, in his earthly ministry, Christ shows Himself to be the obedient Son of God who lays down His life for His people, the benevolent Son of God who goes to the cross, who bears the wrath of God upon sin that you and I deserve, who in his humiliation is buried, he is numbered among the dead. And then then in his exaltation, God raises him and exalts him. In his incarnation, in being born under the law, fulfilling the law, his death, we see Christ's obedience and we see the rationale as to why he deserves to be this exalted king over all creation. But secondly, this section shows us the nature of Christ's kingdom. Not only does Christ rule and reign, but in verse 9 we have this very sobering reminder of just the power of his reign. That Christ will break the nations with a rod of iron and shatter them like earthenware. Again, this kind of ties back to the fact of God laughing in heaven. He laughs at the fact that there is nothing that mankind can do to usurp his reign and rule. Man has spoken in his rebellion. God the Father has answered. The Son has responded to the call and the the promise or the decree of the Father... And now we, we are given this fourth voice, this, the narrator or the Holy Spirit. And here in this section, we see, again, we see the benevolence of God. We see the goodness of God in not leaving his, his creation, his, his people in this estate, that they would perish forever forever. But since he has sent Christ, since he has sent his king to atone for the sins, he now invites rebellious sinners to come unto him. That God does not leave them there, but he now invites them. We have this warning and invitation of Christ. In verse 10, would you read with me? Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship or serve the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling do homage or other versions say kiss the sun that he not become angry and perish and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled how blessed are all who take refuge in him we're presented with these five imperatives here speaking pertinently to the nations or directly to the nations these five imperatives of show discernment take warning Worship or serve, rejoice with trembling, or kiss the sun. Even in the midst of man's rebellion, do you see the grace of God in, in allowing them time? In allowing them time to repent of their rebellion. and allowing them time to, to think about what they are actually doing. In railing day after day, week after week, year after year, against their Creator. God showing his, his, his benevolence to them in calling them to repentance. Calling them to these five imperatives. And I want to particularly look at, at verse 12 when it says, do homage or kiss the son. Because I think this verse is teaching us that how we deal with Christ, how we deal with God's son is how he will deal with us. How we deal with God's Son is how He will deal with us. In in ancient times, the the kissing of of the feet of of a ruler showed great submission and humility to that that ruler. And here we see that exact same thing, that the nations are being called to come unto Christ. They're being called to, to, to submit to who He is, to submit to what He's done. But they're also met with a warning. They're being called because the time is short. They're being called to come to pay homage to the Son because the time is short. The second, in, in the first half of verse 12, kiss the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. And you perish in the way. And this kind, this kind of parallels back with Psalm 1. I know we really didn't go through Psalm 1. But in Psalm 1, we're presented with the blessed way, right? The way of the Lord. The way of righteousness and justice. And here, the the nations are being called to, to repent, lest they perish in their own way. In the way in which they are going. In the way of rebellion and sin against God. We see the immense mercy of God in calling those who have rebelled to reconciliation. And I think this, this gives us two main things of application. Firstly, it should, in, it, should, it should inform our worldview. It should inform our worldview. How it is that we look around what's going on and how we discern the truth of it. Because many times... And many times in conversation, we speak to people and, 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 they, and we're beginning to talk about social matters or we're talking about the times, and, and you might hear someone say, you know, I just don't know what they're thinking. I just don't know why they're doing what they're doing. But here in Psalm 2, we're presented with that answer. They, they, they do what they do because, because of their sinful heart because of their sinful nature, that, that their, their problem is not that, that they don't have enough money. Their problem is not that they grew up in, in such and such a home. Their problem isn't because of uneducation. Their problem is first and foremost in the innermost part of their being, where all their thoughts, intentions, and desires occur. And, and, and you and me, as, as followers of Christ, this should inform us how we deal with them, how we engage the culture. How we engage our lost neighbors. That it cannot be on some surface level. Even though we should seek to care for, for sur- surface level things such as you know, the basic needs of life. But we need to understand within the context that these need to be dealt at the root of the issue. The root core being there in active rebellion against God. No, they may not be building towers up to the heavens to rip God off of His throne. But by living as if he was not there, they're still living in active rebellion and they need to be reconciled to him. And secondly, this is a great privilege for you and I in a few ways. First as God's people, we can take great comfort in knowing that this is our king. We can take great comfort in, in going to our Bible and flipping to Revelation 19 and seeing the end of the matter, right? Of seeing that, that yes, we may, we may be wrestling with so many things in life and we may be coming up against, against governments and principalities who seek to box in the truth and who seek to, to set themselves up as the arbiters, the judges of truth, but yet we know from Revelation that their end is utter destruction. This gives us great comfort that we can go through our day-to-day lives knowing that God holds us in the palm of His hand. And because we are blood-bought children of God, we will not be let go. And secondly, we have an immense privilege as God's people to be the conduits of that truth. Elon Musk, in buying Twitter, May, have, may, may stay the tide of free speech in this, in this land for a time. But ultimately, the rebellion of men and, and their attempt to, to persuade others of what is true and what is not, will not stop. Because the heart, the heart continues to be the same. But we have been given the great privilege of proclaiming truth. That we who've been redeemed we who have, we have come to the Son, we, we who have been enabled by the Spirit of God to come and to pay homage to the Son for what He has done for us and to be cleansed of our sins, we have the immense privilege of going out into our world day after day and proclaiming that great truth. And this manifests itself in multiple ways, and they're all of equal weight. For those of us who stay home with, 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 your, with your children teaching them the great truths of, of the gospel and of God and of who God is and of his great love for his creation is no less important than going out in the middle of downtown Greenville and, and street preaching. Of, of, of those of us who go out into the workplace and we are interacting with coworkers, doing doing you know, the, the, the daily grind that sometimes gets so laborious and, and tiresome but yet we have the immense privilege of showing to a world and of being an embodiment of a redeemed sinner of the grace and the mercy of God, of being conduits of that truth. Man has spoken in his rebellion. God has answered him. The Son has answered the Father in response. And now the Spirit leaves us here And says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. God has abundantly given us every every reason to praise him, to walk faithfully with him. And that because the promise of the Father, that because we have this promise of the Father to give His Son a kingdom and that we are all, all who have, been, who have been redeemed by the Son are in that kingdom. We stand on the side of the armies of heaven. We, we stand on the side of victory and because we know that end, we are able to live faithfully amid uncertain times. That yes, that yes free speech may continue to dwindle. That yes, we may still have governments and people in high positions who claim to know the truth, who claim to be the, art, the judge of what is true and what is false. We, brothers and sisters, can take hope. We can take great courage and joy in knowing that God has not abandoned us and that he has set his king. And that we are we can live faithfully as his servants in this world. Because we have this great promise. Remember the words of Jesus to his disciples. He said this. In this world, you will. You will have tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. We live in anxious and uncertain times, which are really no different than any other time in the world history. But yet we have a great promise that our king is coming to take us home and our King is benevolent, and He has purchased us with His own blood. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit antiochpca.com.